For tonight's lesson, I want to introduce our main study by reminding us of the definition of two different concepts. Uh, the difference between ignorance and stupidity. Um, the reason I think we should review these is because a lot of times people will mix these two up. And one is very insulting and, and the other isn't. For instance, just to put this simply, ignorance is not having the knowledge of a subject matter. You just don't know. Somebody hasn't taught you. On the other hand, stupidity, if I could put it simply, is you do know things, and you choose to either ignore them or, or simply set them aside, and you continue to make foolish choices. We find that plays into tonight's lesson, because when I had the opportunity to share uh, the second lesson from this series, Ouch, the Seven Deadly Things of Sin, uh, that was also from a psalm, Psalm 22, and we'll review just a little bit of that. Uh, and there we talked about the emotional abuse that Jesus had to endure uh, as our Savior. And we'll talk a little bit about some more emotional abuse, but this lesson shifts us a little more towards the physical, and especially uh, because of the insults that Jesus had to endure, um, the psychological or the mental abuse that he had to endure. Uh, one of the things that I should also remind you is, is that tonight's lesson is, the word is scorned, and that's not one that we use a lot, so I've also put the definition for that, to feel or express contempt for, to reject somebody in a contemptuous way, to show contempt towards somebody. And maybe as you're thinking about these things and reviewing the passion history in your own mind, uh, it would be good for us to review just a couple of those concepts. Uh, let me talk to you about people who, out of ignorance, mocked and insulted Jesus. Who hit you, guess? Prophesy. Who hit you next? Stop it. Stop it, I said. Bring him before the council. Move. The first situation of Jesus being scorned or insulted, uh, this mocking, was done by guards who didn't really understand the full scale of what they were doing. Uh, these men were sent to arrest Jesus and then bring him before the religious leaders. They were ignorant in the sense that they had no idea how long the religious leaders had actually been plotting against Jesus to get rid of him. Nor did they have any knowledge of the fact that they had worked a deal with one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, about betraying him. So while it would have been smart on their part to have at least tried to check out some of the facts in their ignorance, as often happens in the history of sinful mankind, people simply followed orders. On the other hand, the religious leaders didn't operate out of ignorance. They operated out of stupidity. They're the ones who were tasked with knowing and understanding the word of God. And they had the further responsibility of actually being the ones who were supposed to teach to uh, the people exactly what the truth of God's word said. And that brings into focus, then, the lesson that we're going to study tonight. These men weren't ignorant of what King David had written, but they certainly played the part of that scorning taking place at the cross. Those who passed by defamed him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha! You who can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, even the chief priests, together with the experts in the law, were mocking him among themselves. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now, that we may see and believe. 
those who were crucified with him also spoke abusively to him. One of the criminals who was hanging there railed at him saying, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Little did the religious leaders know and understand that they would be the fulfillment of the words that we're going to study tonight and the words that King David wrote long before uh, these events ever took place. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. You can already start thinking of, yes, they were the actual fulfillment of these words, but there's so much more, and so that we're not ignorant of all of the details and aspect of this amazing lesson, we should probably educate ourselves about Psalm 69. It helps to do that, if you will, if we compare it to the one that we talked about two weeks ago, Psalm 22, because in many ways these psalms are very similar. They were both written by King David. Uh, they both were historically set to a tune that was popular uh, in its day. They're both messianic psalms, meaning that they speak to and were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But that's also where these psalms differ just a little bit. When we studied Psalm 22 two weeks ago, I told you that it's not only a messianic psalm, but it's actually a, a, a psalm that's a dual prophecy, meaning that it first and foremost it was fulfilled in the life of King David, and we talked about a couple of those possibilities. Uh, and then it ultimately is fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. That's what makes it a messianic psalm. David wrote words about his life and then about the future. Psalm 69 isn't a dual prophecy. It's a single prophecy, or some would refer to it as a, a typical prophecy. It finds its fulfillment only in the life of Jesus Christ. There's no specific or direct impact in the life and times of King David. Now, some question that, uh, because when they talk about the time in David's life when he's running from wicked King Saul, many of these things could maybe be applied to King David, but as you study the psalm, and especially as you look at the verses that we're studying together tonight, um, you find that they can't really apply to any other person than Jesus Christ himself. Uh, so we understand that Psalm 69 had its fulfillment, not only in the words that uh, uh, are written for us in the psalm, but you see how the gospel lessons record that for us as well. And as we focus in on just a couple of the verses from the psalm, we see that already King David is writing in a way where we know this doesn't apply to him. He twice in the opening verse talks about how Jesus acknowledges the fact that God the Father was very well aware of uh, what was going on. He could certainly see. He knew uh, what these people were saying uh, and what these people were doing to his own son. Any other person in the history of this world that might have found themselves in this situation, God the Father, because of his nature and because of his promises of love, would have had to react in one or another kind of way. But with Jesus, his own son, he does nothing. It's as if he turns a blind eye, even knowing full well what is being said is completely false. And imagine that, having the entire world accuse you of things that are completely and totally a lie. This is part of the scorning that our Savior had to endure. So you understand the pain that Jesus struggled with uh, and had to endure for us. David actually uses three words that are quite similar 
uh, sounding in our own language. And it's probably good if we educate ourselves specifically to the concepts that he's talking about so we begin to better appreciate uh, the insults that our Savior had to endure. The first one that King David used, scorned, it's actually from a root word that describes the process of harvesting a, a field, stripping it bare when it's time uh, to take the harvest into the barns. Uh, it, it came to mean uh, the concept of defaming somebody, but it also has a, a visual concept to it and might actually imply something that uh, was pertinent to the crucifixion that we don't talk about or even really see very much today. It has to do with the fact that every man was crucified, typically was crucified naked and without the loincloth that you normally see on the crucifixes that we display in our homes or in other places. It certainly would have been a shameful way for a man to die, not just on a cross, but completely exposed to anyone who walks by. The second word, disgrace, that we translate is actually the Hebrew word for shame. Uh, it talks about both the cause of that shame and then the feeling of shame itself, which leads perfectly into the third word that's translated as shamed. It's actually from a root word that talks about harming somebody. Uh, and from that we get the, the concept of insulting somebody or taunting them. It describes the entire context as well as the activity of what's taking place both before the cross and then ultimately when Jesus is nailed to the cross. Then finally, David identifies the people who would be doing this to our Savior. He uses a word common in our language, enemies. But it comes from this word that talks about putting intense pressure or binding on somebody. And so while it could have the idea of physical pain, we also have the concept very much so that Jesus now once again is enduring some emotional pain and the psychological pain. Now this is an event that took place long ago. Long ago was fulfilled by our Savior, and yet we see that the scorning, this insulting against the very Son of God is still happening today. And you might wonder, well, exactly how can that take place? So I'd like to show you an example. Excuse me, down here. Hey, can I ask you a question? Yes, my son. I am here for you. Literally. Have you thought about maybe becoming an organ donor? Is this really the best time to bring this up? Oh, we get it. You know, no one wants to talk about death. <laughs> but, you know, not all of us are going to the uh, eternal paradise, and uh, your organs could save the lives of up to six people. Seven. Seven people. Not to mention how your bones and, and soft tissue and ligaments could change the lives of many others. And corneas will help blind people see. What a miracle! Obviously, I would do it. I'm Jesus. Yes, yes, you're Obviously. Jesus, you know. Yeah. You've helped them. That's from a commercial that was produced in Australia about organ donating. And while the cause is certainly good, uh, the concept isn't. They're blaspheming the very Son of God. In fact, what we found out was uh, when I was looking for this and then did some research, so many people were offended by it, thank God, um, that they uh, had a protest and eventually it was taken off the air. The point still stands, though, that even today people, either out of ignorance or out of stupidity, are willing to speak evil against God's own Son, the very one who was sent to rescue us from all of our sins. And the Lord himself, through the words of King David, describes his feeling to that response. 
All of these things, there was nobody to step forward. There, not even one of the disciples was able to come up and defend the Lord. Even God the Father himself didn't say, this is the Son who's always right. Listen to him. He fell silent. And Jesus describes this pain that he, he endures, this scorn, as what breaks his heart. That wasn't the end of his suffering and not the end of his scorn. The last part of it we find comes at the hands of the Roman soldiers and they are ignorant of who they are crucifying and how they're fulfilling the actual words of King David's psalm. It talks about two different things. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Well, there's a little history here that we have to understand. First and foremost, to appreciate the prophecy, King David writes his words before the actual act of crucifixion was even invented. And yet we find that when crucifixion finally did become the means of execution by the Roman government, these were two things that would often play in. When the soldiers would lead the condemned man out to the place that they were going to be crucified and they'd finally arrive, one of the first things they would do is offer them a drink with this component gall mixed in it. And a lot of people don't even know what that is, but actually uh, it's a mild narcotic that comes from the opium plant family. Uh, and it's a very bitter tasting drink, and, and yet most of the soldiers had no trouble getting the condemned men to drink it because by the time they got there, most of them were dehydrated and, and, and very thirsty, and so they drank it down. Once ingested, what it would actually do is put them in a bit of a stupor, and the soldiers would do this to calm the men whose hands and feet they were about to nail to a cross. And so they did it to, in some way, make their job a little bit easier. Scripture tells us that Jesus fulfilled these words, that when he tasted this drink, he immediately refuses it. Because after all, he was making payment for the sin of all the world, and the full wrath of God the Father was to fall on him. And there was nothing that would bring him comfort other than his love for us. The other drink that David talks about is what is known as uxos. It's uh, the Greek word for this vinegary wine that the soldiers would often bring to the cross and they would drink of it because they needed to pass the time because oftentimes crucifixions would last for hours, if not for days. And this drink that Jesus received, this vinegary wine, takes place at the end of the crucifixion. In fact... We're told that it was for the very fulfillment of this psalm that King David wrote that Jesus requests this drink, and before his dying moments, somebody takes a sponge, dips it into that, and lifts it to its lips. It's at that point, then, finally, the Son of God, having made payment for all of our sins, having endured so much suffering and pain, not just the physical, the emotional, the psychological, we finally realize the cost of our sin. Now, part of me really wants to be angry with these people at the cross who were treating our Lord the way he was. But the reality is, I can't be. Because when I stop to think about how many times I've spoken words either thoughtlessly or ignorantly, I come to the realization that I've done the very same thing that they've done. Not only when I foolishly use my words or use them without much thought or knowledge and I end up insulting the brothers and sisters uh, of you and me, the very creation of God, but also those who have been redeemed by God, I come to the realization that that's not only an insult to them, it's an insult to God as well. And part of the struggle comes with the fact that not only do I do this 
to other people, but I also and primarily do this to my Lord. It has to do with the fact that despite the reality that I'm not an ignorant man, I've spent years studying God's Word and even teaching it, not unlike the religious leaders of Jesus' day, yet I find myself in these foolish, stupid places. Because after all, I've read the passages, I've, I've read the promises of God that says, I will be with you always, I will take care of you, I love you. And then I see how God makes his promise to send a rescuer and so perfectly and completely fulfills it, step by step, prophecy through prophecy, and yet I find myself wanting to trust more in my plans or in my planning. And the reality is I place myself and my supposed wisdom above that of God and his plan and his wisdom. And so part of me truly knows and understands the reality of the insults, the scorning, the taunting, the humiliation that these people put Jesus through because I foolishly, sinfully stupid, make choices that do the very same thing to my Lord. And yet there's something we all can take heart in and David's words help us to truly understand. Because God the Father turned his back on his son, because he watched what was going on and allowed it to take place to fulfill the prophecies and the promises, it guarantees to me and it guarantees to you that God can't, because of who he is, his very nature, because of his words of promise, he can't turn his back on us. And so whether we're dealing with ignorance whether we're dealing with stupidity, there is one and only one answer to get rid of all of that. And that is ultimately to know our Lord Jesus Christ. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. And he never traveled more than 200 miles from a place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. When he was only 33 years old, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. And he was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And whilst he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Now 19 centuries have come and gone and today he's the central figure of the human race. I'm far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the lives of people of this earth as much as that one solitary life.